Welcome and good morning. People are trickling back in. I'll be honest, one of my favorite parts of our, of our gatherings is this five-minute time. I know if you're new, you might be like, what is going on? Why is everybody talking to one another? I just wanted to come and sit and listen and sneak out. And we intentionally build that into our gathering so that you can't do that. Because the church is the community of God. And if all you ever do is come and sit and listen and not actually get connected in relationship, you will not be able to experience all of the love and the joy and the peace that we are celebrating now at Christmas time. Because one of the chief means of God's grace comes to us through his people. And so we really want you to get connected. We want you to get, to, we want you to get connected. So that's my spiel. I give it a lot because I want you to know why we do it and to just make you aware that it's really, really, really important. So don't just sit there and uh, watch the countdown. Actually say hi to someone, all right? Actually say hi, say hi to someone. All right, if you're new, we are in an Advent series. We've been spending the year going through the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, following a thing called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a systematic way to read through the Bible in three years. I think we went from year A to year B. We, we started at a weird time anyways. We're in the season of Advent, which Advent is not the celebration of Christmas, which you liturgical folk, I've been corrected for saying that it's the time to celebrate Christmas. Like, no, it's not. It's when we wait in anticipation for the coming of Christmas. It's like, okay, let's split hairs about it, right? But those of you who are really up on it, that's what Advent is. And so we're in an Advent series called Coming Soon where we're following and anticipating the coming of Jesus, kind of like a movie plays out with its script. So last week, if you were here with us, we looked at something that that I referred to kind of as like the movie trailer, right? The exciting foretelling of the future that changes how we live in the present. So that's what we looked at last week. We're moving into the climax of Jesus coming at Christmas and his birth. We saw the movie trailer. This morning, we're going to move past the movie trailer. You can imagine you've taken your seat in the theater, and we have sort of that, that rolling script, the setup, the beginning of the movie. If you, how many of you have been to Star Wars movies, right? You know that, that rolling script. Not everybody loves Star Wars, which, what's wrong with you? Those are classic movies. <laughs> They're classic. You probably love The Sound of Music if you don't like Star Wars. <laughs> another dig at the sound of music, right? All right, right? But even if you don't like Star Wars, you all know, you all know that scrolling script at the beginning. All Star Wars movies start out with a yellow scrolling script, right? Um, where the, the, the text comes up as like a galaxy far, far away, and then the text crawls off into those distant stars, giving us the context and the setup. It tells us what, what to expect from like the historical the historical, you like that? I spent a lot of time on this, actually, right? It tells us, like, the historical data that's going on, all the, the political intrigue that's going on, certain characters that we're supposed to keep our eyes peeled for and on the lookout for. That's what's happening. And that's what Mark 1, verses 1 through 8, is. It is the, the rolling setup giving us a picture of the historical data, the political intrigue, and the people, the characters to be on the lookout for. So, here's what I want to do with you this morning. We're going to read the text in a second. We'll be in Mark 1, so if you have your Bibles or your phones, please get those out. We'll be in Mark 1. I'll be in the NIV. We're going to read it together, and as you're getting your your Bible in front of you, uh, I'll give you the big idea what we're driving towards this morning. It's at the top of your bulletin in your notes as well. The big idea is this. 
Know your place and boldly proclaim Jesus' baptism of repentance as you wait for his return. Know your place and boldly proclaim Jesus' baptism of repentance as you wait for him to return. As we read, you will see that Mark does clue us in on some historical events, on some political intrigue, but along with that, we're going to meet an important member of this movie. He's not the main character, but he's, he's a supporting cast member. His, his name is John the Baptist. I'm going to call him Johnny B. this morning, just because I like that better. Johnny B. shows us through his example how to wait with, an, in, with anticipation and with action for the coming of Christ. So we'll, we'll look at the example of John the Baptist this morning. We're going to learn a few things from him, all right? So with all that said, let's read the text together. Mark 1, verse 1. John, or Mark writes, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will, repa- who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right. Mark starts out his gospel in a very similar way to how God starts out the whole narrative of Scripture in Genesis. If you've read your Bibles, you may be familiar that the very first three words of the book of Genesis begins much like Mark, in the beginning. In the beginning. I believe Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is choosing his words very carefully here. He wants us to know that something similar to what happened in Genesis is happening again. It's happening here in the story of Jesus. God is doing a new thing, a new beginning of sorts that we would all be wise to pay attention to. You say, well, what exactly is this new thing that God is doing? Well, again, if you think about this text in terms of a movie setup, like that Star Wars crawling script right at the beginning of their movies, there's a lot in verses 1 and 2 to unpack that we might just gloss over. At first glance, you might just say, okay, we've heard this, yeah, yeah, yada, yada, right? You yada, yada, you move on. We shouldn't do that. We should pause here and think about what, what the words actually mean. Mark says, listen, pay attention. God is doing a new thing. It's the beginning of good news. Or as the ESV translated, it's the beginning of the gospel. That's actually the Greek word that's being used there. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a very, very loaded statement. Again, Mark is choosing his words very carefully, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Also, again, many of us who've grown up in church, we, we, we hear these words and we just think, okay, I've, I've heard this all before. It, it doesn't really hit. Or if you haven't grown up in church, there's nothing really that inspiring or that intriguing, right, for you in this first sentence. All right, we've got it. Here's the beginning. Jesus Christ, yep, heard that name. 
but it's not really that inspiring. So I want to take a few minutes together, and I just want to slow down. I want to encourage you, as as you read Scripture for yourself, if you just read it quick and don't actually slow down and think about it, you meditate on it. To meditate on Scripture means you dwell on certain words. You, You roll them through your mind. You ask, what does this mean? You think about the deeper definition. You maybe even look it up. We're going to do that for a couple of words. We're going to realize there's a lot going on here. Okay, so the first verse, the beginning, he says. It's the beginning. Again, Mark's calling our, our, our attention here. He wants us to know God is doing a new thing. Pay attention. He says the beginning of the gospel, the good news. Again, that word for us has lost a lot of significance, or it has, has a different meaning for us today because we have 2,000 years of church history, of Christian history. When you hear the gospel, that's loaded, that's got baggage on it. We need to remember that we're not the first hearers, the intended audience of Mark. How would have they have heard this for the first time? Well, if we ask that question, what does the word gospel mean? What did it mean for them? We know what it means for us. We have an idea, Jesus, church, Christianity. We have an idea of what it means, but what did it mean for them? If you go back and you look at the Greek, the good news, the gospel, it's it's a word called euangelion, euangelion. And it does, in fact, mean good news. But if you would have heard it back in the times as when Mark was writing, it would have carried different baggage, different meaning than what we have. It was reserved for kingly announcements or for, for divine announcements. The word had a lot of political and historical baggage attached to it. For instance, if you're a historical buff, you, you're a history buff, you might be aware of this, but you can look this up online. There's a bunch of information floating around online about something called the preen calendar inscription. The preen calendar inscription. And essentially what it is, is somebody etched out on a stone why we should build our entire calendar <clears throat> around Caesar Augustus's birthday, which in fact, we did. Our calendar is built around this guy, this Roman emperor. And so this preen inscription is making a case for why we should build it around his birthday. And actually, the, the month of August is named after Caesar uh, Augustus. I don't know if you knew that or not. If you read in that preen inscription, you will find a gospel message that this great emperor and God, it says, because of his, his benevolence and his, his great rule, he's bringing good tidings or good news because of his rule, not just for the Roman Empire, but for all of the world. So this proclamation went out and it was inscribed all over the place and everybody wanted to know Uh, The leaders at the time wanted people to know that Caesar Augustus was not just emperor, he was God, and his benevolence made everything good. And that was the gospel. That was the good news. So when Mark's hearers hear the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news, they are clued into the fact that there is something political about to happen. There is something very, very historical, that kingly, that is about to happen. They would have known this because of their context. And not just because of the Roman context, but also in the Old Testament, when that word gospel is used, it's used in conjunction with God, bringing about His rule and reign, bringing about His vengeance against the rebels and the traitors. It's about kingly rule and reign. All that to say, this word has huge historical and political ramifications. 
So if I were to paraphrase verse 1 of Mark, I would say something like this. Pay attention. Heads up, people. I'm about to drop some amazing news. In Jesus, God is bringing good news, glad tidings, the gospel. He's initiating a new rule that's going to change everything. This is the beginning of the gospel, of that good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the ESV says. The NIV takes it a step further, and he says it's the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. There again, if you, if you have grown up in church, you're familiar with the word Jesus Christ, or the two words, Jesus Christ. If you haven't grown up in church, my guess is that you're also still familiar with that name, right? Maybe in some less than righteous context, but we're all familiar with the name Jesus Christ. And most of us, we don't pause long enough to think about what does that actually mean? You think first and last name. It's actually not a first and last name. It's a first name and a title. A first name and a title. Christos, Christ, the Messiah. It actually means the anointed one of God. The anointed one of God. The, the chosen one who will bring about all of God's promises for salvation, for the redemption and thriving of humanity. Jesus Christ. Jesus who is Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the King. Again, to paraphrase Mark here. People of the world, hear ye, hear ye, he says. I bring good news. God has sent His King, the Anointed One. He's here. He's ruling, not just over Rome or over this empire, but over all that is. God is on His throne and His name is Jesus. Listen up. This is the beginning of that rule and that reign. Church, I want you to imagine with me for a minute, living under a corrupt rule of government, being overtaxed, having your faith come under constant attack from political leaders, from the culture of the day. Just imagine that for a second. You don't have to imagine that hard, do you? We have it rough, but it's not that rough. Not for us, at least here in the West. Not yet. The Jews and the Christians of Mark's day, they had it way rougher than we do. We may get canceled or shouted down on social media. We might even lose our job because of our faith. But we don't have it as bad as the Jews or the Christians in the days of the Roman Empire. When they got canceled for their faith, they got crucified, literally. Now imagine you're living under this oppressive regime of government where it's basically illegal to practice your religion openly, right? Caesar Augustus is God. There is no God but Caesar. And Jesus comes on the scene. He says, hold on a second. You live in, in this oppressive regime where it's literally your faith is, is constantly threatened. You, you're threatened to being canceled. And when you're canceled, you're crucified on a cross and hung by the road so that everybody knows if you go against Rome, this is what happens, right? The Roman peace. You know how they kept the Roman peace? Crucifixes with bodies hanging on the side of the road. Now imagine you're hearing these words for the very first time from Mark. Hear ye, hear ye. I bring glad tidings, good news. God is about to do something new. 
Here's the beginning of the rule of a righteous, good, and godly king. The Son of God is here. He's coming. This statement that Mark is making, it's treasonous, church. It's treasonous. Again, from the preen inscription, it tells us that Rome wanted everyone to believe that their leader was the one and only God. I'm paraphrasing the, the inscription a little bit, but basically it says there's no God but Caesar. Only He is responsible for peace, for joy, for prosperity. Not just in Rome, but in all of the land. Worship Him, it says. Serve Him. Pay tax and homage only to Him. Build your calendars and your days around Him and His birthday. Follow Him alone and all will be well. Again, not just in this land, but in all of the world. It's in this historical and political context that Mark says, God is doing a new thing. Get ready, Mark says. Watch, wait. See what this new rule and reign will look like. The rule and reign not of Caesar Augustus, but of the one true God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God's anointed. And to back up this statement, to help us understand that, that this isn't just like a, a, a flimsy thing that, that he's writing about. It's like, no, this is a historic plan God is putting into place since clear back in Genesis. And he cites Old Testament prophecy. He, he, he clumps together three prophecies from Micah 3, Exodus 23, 20, and Isaiah 43. Most believe that he's quoting from a collection of prophecies that were lumped together because of their similarities, and he's, he's ascribing it to the most popular prophet of that day. So he's like, Here, here's all these prophecies, just like Isaiah says, and he lumps it all together. And then he quotes, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. See, Mark wants everyone to know that, that this is not just a a quick, quick decision on the Lord's hand. This is something he's been preparing for. It's historical. God's new ruler, his anointed one, is coming just as he promised, as he's been promising for thousands and thousands of years. It's human history. It's historical fact. And because of that, church, this good news, because it's historical fact, you might be able to ignore it, You might be able to twist it and abuse it, but one thing you cannot do, because it's historical fact and evidence, you can never erase it. You cannot erase the person of Jesus and who he is. Now, I realize we've spent a lot of time on just three verses, but I really wanted you to see what all of the hype was about and hopefully help you feel some of the anticipation that would come if you were the first-time hearer of this message from Mark. God is doing a new thing. This is the start. It's the beginning of something new. Historically, politically speaking, everything is about to change. Any of you frustrated politically? This gospel, this good news, Mark says, it's going to shake up all of it for the good of God's people. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so now we have that set up, the historical data, the political intrigue, sort of rolling back up often into the distance. And you might expect that we'd get introduced to the main character. We'd start 
start to hear stories about this king. What does his rule and his reign look like? But before that happens, we meet someone else. We meet Johnny B. Mark clues us into something that God is doing. He raises our anticipation to see who this new king is. But before he takes us to the main character, he says, I need you to know, I need you to know about one of the supporting cast members. He's important. He's really, really important. John the Baptist. Wes is going to clue us in a little bit more to John the Baptist's origin story next week. So we're not going to look at that. But what I do want to look at with you this morning is the message of John the Baptist. John's message this morning is important. As we look at it, we'll see how he waited for Christ's first coming. And we can learn from his example how we should wait with anticipation and action for Christ's second coming. Mark records in verse 4, And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out and they confessed their sins. They owned them. They renounced them and they were baptized by him in the Jordan. You see, as John waited for this new king to bring about his reign, that would bring about the gospel, good news, glad tidings, He didn't hide out and hunker down like some of us want to do because of all of the bad stuff in our culture. He didn't do that. Rather, he chose the path of proclamation. He came as a voice crying out in the wilderness. Church, do you sometimes feel like you're in a wilderness? Culture can feel like that sometimes, can it? Like we're in a strange land, foreign people, Foreign concepts that we just think, what? What is happening? Right? Sometimes you may feel like you're living with animals. If you have toddlers in your house, you kind of are. It's okay, it's going to get better. It's a season. Sometimes it can feel like, like we're living with animals. People who are more controlled by their most basic animalistic instincts rather than common decency and righteous morality. It can feel like a wilderness sometimes, can it? We're left with the question as we live in this wilderness, how are we supposed to to wait for Christ's coming? What are we supposed to do when we live with such beasts all around us? Are we supposed to attack them before they can attack us? Are we supposed to run and hide so that we don't get attacked from them? Are those the only two options we have? No, they're not. Let me suggest to you a third way this morning as we wait, like John, for the second coming of our king. We can follow the example of Johnny B. We, too, are to use our voices not to condemn our culture or to cancel our culture, but rather to call our culture to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We are to call out with convictional kindness firm but kind, with God's truth, convictional kindness, proclaiming to our culture the pathway of salvation that comes only by faith in the child that we will look upon in the manger, Jesus Christ, through repentance, turning from our sin. You see, church, too many Christians, too many Christians expect regenerate behavior to come out of unregenerate people. 
What I mean by that is we look out at culture and we sort of shake our finger, we roll our eyes, and we just scoff. And, oh, can you believe these people? We expect people who don't know Jesus to act like Jesus. Friends, they can't. They can't. You say, why? Because they don't know any better. They're just like you used to be. Just like I used to be. They are lost. Our culture is so incredibly lost. We have no idea what to do with ourselves. We have no idea who we are apart from Jesus. The best we can do to to find identity is look to our sexuality. Surely that must be who we are, who who we would, would like to go to bed with. That, that's who I am. That's the extent of who I am. And culture says, yep, if you want purpose, if you want meaning, look to your sexuality. That's your identity. It's sad. And we're seeing the, the devastating effects that are happening because of it. Our culture is so lost. Culture today is preaching a baptism, not of repentance, but a baptism of tolerance, of celebration of sin. Something that's to be embraced and celebrated rather than something that needs to be turned from, to be freed from, to pursue God's righteousness. It's not working well for us. We are more depressed, more anxious, more suicidal, more addicted than any culture that's ever come before us. We are so incredibly lost. But thanks be to the God of heaven. He has sent the great hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, after us to seek us out. It's the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is here. He came to find those of us who are lost, to restore us, to give us a new and better and beautiful identity. We are not just our sexuality. We are men and women biologically created in the image of God, meant to be ambassadors of a new and better kingdom with a purpose and gifts to live with purpose and hope and love. This is the message we proclaim as we wait, church. Jesus has a new and better identity for you. Come to Him and be found. This is the message we proclaim, and proclaim it boldly, we must, just as John the Baptist did. And I know there's a lot in this message. There's a lot in the Bible. If we proclaim it as God wrote it, it will not be popular. It will not make you popular. But church, let's be, let's be bold like John the Baptist. We don't have to be unkind. We shouldn't be unkind. We should be kind, but we should also be convictional. We should stand firm and hold firm to what God said. If God said it and it's true, then we proclaim it with boldness, just like Johnny B., just like John the Baptist. I love this story about John the Baptist. John, his ministry happened during the time of a man named Herod Antipas. Herod was a Roman governor of sorts at the time John started his his ministry, and Herod was a rotten, rotten dude. He was so rotten. Somebody say, how rotten was he? You are not awake. Somebody say, how rotten was he? Thank you. Right? He's rotten. He's so rotten. At one time, he goes to visit 
his brother-in-law, Philip, who's also like a governor, and his name is Herod too. Herod, Philip, Herod, Antipas. It's confusing. It gets worse. So he goes to visit his brother-in-law. Let's say it's at, let's say it's at Christmas time. It's not, but just for our imaginations. Let's say they, they have a family get-together. It's Christmas for the holidays. They go, while Herod is at his brother-in-law's, he woos his brother-in-law's wife, convinces his sister-in-law to divorce his brother-in-law, who also happens to be his niece, and they get married. And everybody's like, Jerry, 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 right? It's messed up. It's so messed up. Can you imagine that? You have your brother-in-law over for Christmas. He steals your wife, who also happens to be his niece. What is happening, right? Jerry. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now, in our culture, our culture celebrates, tolerates sin. People might say, well, hey, you know, Herod, he's just going to live his truth. Bless you. Who are we to judge? Just live your truth, man. John the Baptist, he ain't having it. He boldly proclaims the good news. It's good news. The good news about repentance from sin for forgiveness. He says, Herod, dude, you know better. What are you doing? This is incestuous. She's your sister-in-law, your niece, now your wife. What is happening? This is not right. You should repent. You should turn from this. It's wrong. As you can imagine, this message of repentance, that sin is something that needs to be confessed, not celebrated, something to turn away from rather than tolerated, you can imagine it was not very popular with Herod or his niece, who also happened to be his wife and his ex-sister-in-law. <laughs> ah, what a mess. Right? And this message, this message actually gets John the Baptist thrown in prison, and eventually it gets his head chopped off. Like for real. Lopped it off. Brought it out in a platter. John did not cave on proclaiming the good news about repentance. Even up until the point his head was cut off. He proclaimed it with convictional kindness up into the end, church. As you and I wait for Jesus' second coming, may we wait like John the Baptist. May God give us the boldness to be voices crying out in the wilderness the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that sin is something to be repented and turned away from, not relished in or tolerated. John was bold in his proclamation, not just in his word, but also in his lifestyle. Verse 6 tells us of his lifestyle. It tells us that John wore clothing made of camel's hair with leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mark includes this. He wants us to know John looked different than his prevailing culture in his dress, in his diet, in what he said, and what he did, and how he spent his time. He looked different. Do you, Christian? Do you look different from how those who are not Christian live in our world today? This is how we're called to wait, church. We're called to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus in word and in deed.
in how we live. Folks, does your calendar proclaim to the lost around you how much you value Jesus and being with his people? Or does it preach a gospel of glad tidings that come from something other than Christ? Hobbies are great. I have a fair number of my own. They're great. Rest is great. Sleep is great. Sports are great. Extracurriculars are great. But can we just all agree for a minute that none of those things are God? Our calendars should reflect that reality. Honestly, church, our calendars will reflect this reality if we've met Jesus Christ, if we love him more than all these other things. The same could be said of our checkbooks. Do they reflect and proclaim to the world that Jesus and his kingdom are the most important things to us, or if someone were to peek through them, do they show that we worship a different God? Do they proclaim a different gospel? As John the Baptist waited, he did so in anticipation and action, with bold proclamation in his word, but also through his lifestyle. And lastly, as John the Baptist waited, he pointed people beyond himself to the one who is greater than each and every one of us. Church, in a world of self-promotion, this is a toughie. We all love to be the center of attention. We all come out of the womb believing that we are the center of attention. That has to be trained out of us and out of our children. The world doesn't revolve around you or around me or any of our kids. We have to be trained to consider others more important than ourselves, to think of others' interests before we think of our own. As John waited, he did so with anticipation and action that pointed people beyond himself to Jesus. You can read the verses there, 7 and 8. That's what he's doing. He's pointing people beyond himself to Jesus. John knew his place. He knew what his calling was. He was quite gifted. But he never let his giftedness from God or his calling from God allow himself to get prideful. In all things, he deflected and he reflected praise back to God. He was constantly inviting people, don't look to me, look to Jesus. Don't look to me, look to Jesus. I'm going to give you a quick example of what this can look like. And I realize it's, it's very simple. It is very simple. But don't underestimate its power. Imagine with me that someone gives you a compliment, right? Wow, you're really good at basketball. Wow, you're really talented. You're a great carpenter. You're an amazing singer. I love how you, you sang this morning. You're, that's, that's awesome. Your response, if you're following the example of John the Baptist, could be something like, thanks, but you know, I really got to give credit to my king. And not just in the way that some sports figures do, just like flippantly, but like actually mean it from your heart, right? Thanks, I, I appreciate that. I, I do believe God gifted me, but I really got to give him credit. I'm gifted because he gave me that gift. Or someone might say, wow, you have a nice family. You have a nice home. Thanks, the Lord Jesus has been incredibly gracious to me. I serve a really gracious king. He helps me in my parenting. He's provided for my family abundantly because he's a good king. Or when someone, when someone compliments us, we can deflect that praise back to where it truly belongs. Or, or if we're paying a compliment, we can invite others to, to reflect praise back to Jesus, right? 
man, isn't God so good for giving you that gift? Man, I just see how gifted you are. Isn't our, our God amazing for gifting you in that way or for blessing you with this skill or that gift? Again, I realize how subtle this is, but it's important. It's so helpful. You see, God deserves all the praise, church, all of it for everything, even if you had a small part to play in it. John knows his role. He's not the main character, and neither are you, and neither am I. Jesus is the main character. Our job is to point everyone back to him. He's only good. He is only righteous. If we have anything good, it's because of him, even even if you don't know him. That's how good this king is the beginning of this good news and glad tidings for all people, Mark says. Even if you don't worship King Jesus, he blesses you. It's your job as a lover and a follower of this king to help other people understand that, to be like John the Baptist. Say, listen, I'm going to deflect all the praise back to God because that's where it actually belongs. He allows me a supporting role in his film, but at the end of the day, it's all about him. And by the way, every good and perfect gift that you have, James tells us, comes down to us from the Father of lights, the good and perfect King. As we wait this Advent season, let us learn to wait like John the Baptist, with anticipation and action, boldly proclaiming Jesus' baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not just in word. We need to preach with our words, absolutely. But not only that, also in our lifestyle. And as we experience the forgiveness that comes from this good news, may the Lord Jesus help others to be found as we have been and learn to live increasingly in His freedom as we live in His freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank you for seeing how lost we are as a people. How we're all just blind beggars wandering around looking for purpose.